What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, mapping out a post-pandemic work-life balance with psychologist, professor, and fellow podcaster, Adam Grant. We've known for a long time that that flexibility is a benefit for motivation and productivity and retention, even before the pandemic. The pot stock high wearing off? Aurora CEO Miguel Martin on the cannabis, the stock's roller coaster, and Who's getting in on the action? You've started to see a good movement of institutional interest in the cannabis stocks. I mean, it's only been two years that the rec business has been legal in Canada, um, and the medical business is still nascent around the world. Plus, a South Korean giant plans its public debut, and investors swipe right on Bumble. Swipe right, swipe left, or whatever. There's swiping involved. Swipe or no swiping, that's what I think of. It's Friday, February 12th, 2021. Happy Lunar New Year. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Shares of Bumble jumping 64% in yesterday's trading debut. Closed at $70.31 this after opening at $43 per share. It values it above $13 billion. The company raised $2.2 billion, most of which will be used to pay down debt and buy back shares from its pre-IPO stakeholders, but another big IPO. Another day, another big IPO, right? Joe? Yeah, certainly was. I don't know. What's it worth, Andrew? I mean, is it, it's a dating thing, right? I don't know. Is it a, do you know anything about There's it? Big is money this a, in dating. Is this, is this, is a swiper? Was that, that's some other one. Swipe right, swipe left or whatever, right? I Which think one? Greg There's swiping involved. There's swiping involved. Swipe or no swiping. That's what I think of. Uh, Door the Explorer when I think of uh, of You know what I realized, though? What? It's an unfortunate name for the company, Bumble, because when the shares do drop, the headline's going to be Bumble Stumbles. Bumble Stumbles. You're probably right. Well, and and we have our producer who's on, and whenever he's on, when he goes on it, it's Bumbler, I think, is what I I, I always used to use that. (laughs) <laughs> so there's a, I'm not sure. But a great uh, day for the company yesterday. Yeah, unbelievable. I, yeah. Back to that question. I mean, this, this doesn't seem like rocket surgery. Why is it worth so much? Why does it go 64% once again? That, is that a reflection of the overall froth or pricing it wrong again? Or I don't know. I saw a Yahoo survey that was done yesterday that said something like 28% of American adults said that this year they have spent money or bought a stock, one of these high flyer stocks, whether it be a GameStop or an AMC or a handful of other companies. And that's kind of phenomenal if that's right. It was based on a survey of just a thousand people. But you start thinking that through. That's millions and millions and millions of people saying that they bought one of those stocks that moved. That was one of the Reddit stocks. So guys, that makes me think of this article. I mean, we haven't talked about that. Criminal probe. In the well, GameStop frenzy? Is, is, let me ask you this. When Ben Mesrick is, like, making these guys heroes and, wow, aren't they amazing, what if eventually there's some criminal activity? Does that go into the movie? 
or does the movie end last week? Or how does that... Uh, no, we said that all along. No, we don't know the ending. We don't know the ending of this movie. Uh, you know, the other ones you can make them into, I don't know, maybe Mark, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't necessarily a hero in the, in the social network. Maybe there, there will be anti-heroes in the anti-social uh, network. Is that what it's going to be called? Well, remember the Winklevi were like the bad guys in the social network. And then I they were the Larry heroes Summers in his was, next I thought Larry around. Summers was the bad guy. I thought the Winklevi got, felt mm-hmm. like they got shafted. They, they got the, the last laugh, I think, sort of. At least. They definitely came back in his next book. Last chuckle. Yeah, they did. And they're, they're probably worth a billion dollars at this point. More. Probably. More. Yeah. A, a, a oh, piece. Goodness. Multi. A piece. Multi, multi-billion dollars. So awesome. But I, I imagine just two things. One, on GameStop, I imagine there will be, I imagine the, the quote-unquote good guys who are doing this, there will be the anti-hero who will have induced the others to do it on false, uh, you know, with some kind of false pretense, right? I mean, we'll see how that plays out. But I just wanted to make one comment about Bumble and, and sort of we keep looking at these IPOs and thinking that whether they're too inflated or not. I've now been talking to a lot of CEOs about why people are pricing these things where they are. Because we've talked about shouldn't they be pricing them higher? Many CEOs now believe that the market unto itself is overpriced already. And so they're they're worried that if they actually price it too high, yes, they take the money off the table and are taking advantage of the investor. But they're worried that that would actually undermine the confidence that they'd have in those investors when and if the price goes down, which some of them are already expecting. That that's, was the great, great, for me, great revelation recently in terms of a number of conversations I've had with CEOs who are planning IPOs, thinking about how they're pricing it. They all think the, the market is a little bit euphoric. Yeah. With Bumble, right. don't you think eventually you have a vaccine-like thing to fill in there? I've had the vaccine as a, or I've, I've got antibodies or something. Isn't, is that the world we're going to be With living Bumble. in? You, on Bumble. On Bumble. Perhaps. Yeah. Badge of honor. You know, right. I'm safe. In the meantime, the New York Times is reporting that President Trump was sicker with COVID back in October than publicly acknowledged at that time. The report said that the president had depressed oxygen levels down in the 80s. Anytime you get a level in the low 90s, that's a cause for concern. And a lung problem associated with pneumonia that was caused by the coronavirus. I think they had pockets that they saw, Joe, of, in his lungs of, you know, disease or something that was there kind of along those lines. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what the report was saying. I went and thought back uh, about the updates we were getting. <clears throat> and it was clear, like, by the next day that the initial update was definitely sugar-coated. Uh, we found out, remember, yeah. it was much uh, the oxygen levels and yep. everything else. But the... Well, they reported at the time that he left when ventilator. he did because he didn't want to be carried out on a stretcher. But we know, we've heard so many times, and I, I, I think it's improved with, with, I think, with ventilator, what happens with... The, but remember, that was a very bad sign uh, for a while if you were placed on the ventilator. I forget what the numbers were initially about who would eventually come off the ventilator um, alive. A lot of people, obviously, you just don't get off it. But then, you know, we did get some of the antibody drugs and the Regeneron drug and and things like that. But uh, and he got that, I think, quickly. So maybe that was early evidence that for critically ill people, some of those drugs do seem to to provide some benefit. But if you heard that the leader of the free world was on a ventilator, I mean, that brings up all kinds of things. I, I think, would, would you have to hand over the reins to, to Pence? I think at that point he would have, wouldn't you? Yeah. 
Yeah. If, if yes. you're on a ventilator, are you totally, I don't know, you're are you totally... It, but, um, usually, usually you're out, you know. I think if you're being intubated, that, that uh, yeah. you're probably not in a position to, uh, to run, a, you know, run the country. But that was a, you know, what, how long's it been? We're finally finding out. A little bit odd, but you figure that you do. Remember Boris Johnson when he went in? He goes, oh, yeah, I've, uh, I've got a few I symptoms. And then we yeah. found out later uh, that, uh, you know, he acknowledged that, he, that for a while he thought he might not pull through. Frightening. Let's keep our fingers crossed. This sounded great. Uh, yesterday, President Biden said his administration had secured another 200 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine. That brings the U.S. total to 600 million. Don't have to uh, use a calculator here. That would be enough to vaccinate 300 million people with both doses. He said uh, they signed contracts yesterday for more than 100 million more Pfizer shots, jabs, 100 million more Moderna shots. As of yesterday, the CDC said nearly 35 million people had received at least one dose. 11 million people had been vaccinated with two doses. And yesterday, the federal government began shipping a million doses of vaccines directly to retail pharmacies across the country, including Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Walmart, Costco, Kroger and Publix. But the CDC says supply at the pharmacies will be uh, limited uh, as the program ramps up, at least initially. And a reminder, NBC Universal just launched a new website to help cut through all the confusion about vaccines. It's an interactive personal tool that helps users find state-by-state state eligibility, the closest vaccination location, and lots of data on the vaccine in their area. Check it out now at planyourvaccine.com. South Korean e-commerce giant Coupang going public, listing on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol CPNG. Um, guys, I don't know if you remember this company. Um, it's a remarkable uh, business. It is the equivalent of Amazon, DoorDash, and Instacart in one uh, in South Korea. It started in 2010 by Bom Kim, uh, Kim a, uh, a Harvard Business School dropout, uh, who started it almost as Groupon and then pivoted the business. It, it, in certain ways, what they're doing makes what Amazon's in, the, the Amazon infrastructure look like nothing. Uh, you can get a delivery there. Virtually, I believe, almost all deliveries are done in the equivalent of seven hours. People uh, go on at nighttime, uh, order stuff, and it's literally there in the morning. They also do returns. Uh, now, South Korea, of course, a very dense country. So, uh, but some, sometimes uh, these these delivery folks are in these buildings, you know, uh, hundreds of times a day. It's it's sort of a remarkable business. And in the the infrastructure they built, they've basically run every other company, including Amazon, out of the country. Um, and uh, some of them, including Amazon, Alibaba and others, have reportedly tried to buy this business uh, over the t over time. Uh, we should mention that SoftBank is a big investor in this company. They own about 38 percent of the company at 50 billion dollars. Uh, SoftBank would be making about 19 billion dollars uh, on its investment. It, and, and given the way the IPO market is today, maybe we'll go even higher. Who knows? Uh, but that would be about seven times their money. I spoke to the CEO of uh, uh, the company, uh, Ban Kim, uh, back in February of 2018, uh, right around the time of the Olympics. And here's what he had to say about what he thinks about Coupang's business model. Our motto is, uh, cr let's create a world in which customers ask, how did I ever live without Coupang? And, and that means that we're not going to create something that's 5% better or 10% better. Let's create something that's exponentially better for our customers. So that customer vision has always been consistent. And he is... Uh, 
pretty much the Jeff Bezos of South Korea. And we'll see uh, how this trades and when it does begin trading. Um, it's not trading today, the, the filing just out. But we'll, we'll start to dig into the numbers to better understand uh, the company. But growing, it looks like on a revenue basis uh, at about 90 percent uh, year over year, Joe. Wow. Um, total market cap, if, if, if that, that's what they raise. Andrew, did you did you mention that? What's this thing? What, I think we what, could be looking at a 50, 50 plus billion. I think it's going to be the largest IPO in Asia since Alibaba likely could be could be higher than that. Uh, the journal was reporting a couple of weeks ago that they were talking about $50 billion then. But by the way, you look at a Bumble or something uh, coming out of the gate and, and sometimes at that price then jumping. So I think I think this is likely to be a big one um, and, and we'll see what happens. Were you in you were in South Korea for that? Did you say that or you were I was in South Korea for that. And then he came. Actually, I don't know if you remember, he sat with us on the set about a year or two later. Um, but no, I, when I was over there uh, for the Olympics, Olympics. For, um, in yeah. Pyeongchang, I went right. and, and visited with him because I, I had been told by every major retailer in the U.S. This is the one company you need to watch. They all look at how uh, that company operates. The delivery systems are so much more advanced than even, as I said, what Amazon does here. It's um, it's it's something to behold. Yeah. And you brought me a gift. I don't know whether he brought you anything, uh, Becky. That do you remember that, that the Olympics that coat? I don't think he huh? did. He, he didn't coat. bring you anything. I don't it, think he did. I think I did. I thought I brought T-shirts. Mm. Do you remember the T-shirts? You brought me mm. that coat. No. I wear that coat every weekend no. when I'm out with the dogs because it's so warm. Do you? I, that, I do. Okay, you gave well, it to me, and the zipper I, was broken. You remember the zipper went, uh, on one of the, and I fixed that. I fixed that. So I think that's why you gave it to me, actually. But but I I appreciate it, and you didn't get anything. Uh, oh, Becky, you didn't get anything like but this I owe T-shirt. Becky something. I didn't get anything. But it sounds like I owe Joe Becky something. Joe got a coat. I got I nothing but this lousy maybe T-shirt. It was when we, maybe it was Rio. No? I thought when I came back from Rio, we did T-shirts. Okay. Maybe. Anyway. He gave you something at some point. Uh, I didn't even get a Christmas gave, card. Probably gave, he probably has given you a cold in the past. Next on Squawk Pod, work from home, here to stay? The perks, the challenges, and how companies are planning to handle it with organizational psychologist and Wharton professor Adam Grant. We will need some critical face time to build community, create a sense of belonging, enhance trust. Uh, but I don't think we have to be present all the time to get there. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Joe Kernan. Here's Andrew. Salesforce recently declared the 9 to 5 workday. They say it is dead. It's over. In a statement earlier this week, the company's chief people officer saying, quote, an immersive workspace is no longer limited to a desk in our towers. 9 to 5 workday is dead. And the employee experience is about more than ping pong tables and snacks. After it conducted an employee poll, the company now rolling out a flexible remote work model. And joining us to discuss all of this and so much more is Adam Grant. He's an organizational and behavioral psychologist at Warden Professor as well. He's the author of a book with a title that um, is, is 
very apropos of where we are in society right now. It's called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know and How Much Don't We Know and How Much uh, Have We Had to thought again, Think or Have Thought Again About Where We Are, Adam. It's great to see you this morning. Let's start with these workplace issues because I know it's something that you've been thinking again a lot about recently and how we're all going to come back to work. What do you make of what Salesforce has done? Uh, do you think that becomes the model? What, what's going to happen here? Andrew, I think it's mostly good news. I think the, the new data is suggesting that anywhere from one to two days a week are going to be remote or flexible for most companies. Obviously, that doesn't include manufacturing or some kinds of service. But we've known for a long time that that flexibility is a benefit for motivation and productivity and retention. Even before the pandemic, there was an experiment showing that when people were randomly assigned to work from home, they were about 13.5% more productive and half as likely to quit over the next six to nine months. And I think that's, that's obviously good news for a lot of people. But those people who work from home, despite being more productive, were less likely to get promoted because they lacked face time with senior management. And I think that's a, a challenge that we're all going to have to navigate. What's going to happen to the people who don't necessarily have access to leaders at the top? Well, that's what I was going to ask you, the whole idea of proximity to power, right? And when people talk about a hybrid workplace or uh, you know, having flexibility, is it something where you think, Certain days, everybody comes to the office and certain days, nobody comes to the office and that creates the equal opportunity, if you will. Or if you have a completely flexible situation, I imagine if you know the boss is going to be at work that day, you're showing up. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a challenge because in an ideal world, we would let people all work from home the same days so that we could work, focus on culture and collaboration in the days when we're all in the office. But just think about the office space expenses there. It's probably not affordable for most companies. And so I think we are going to stagger. We're going to move more to shift work. There's obviously going to be a premium on being present when senior people are in the room. And I don't know exactly how we're going to navigate that. But I think one thing we should all be thinking about right now is how do we set boundaries? I think you know many people are working two to three hours longer days than they were before. I think a lot of people are having trouble unplugging. We know that well-being is suffering for people who tend to be segmenters, who like to keep that strict border between work and the rest of life. And I think we're going to need to be a lot more thoughtful about saying, look, we're going to give you permission to unplug, and that'll be part of how we attract and retain talented people. Well, let's just talk about retaining talent. What do you think it does to loyalty? And the reason I say that is, you know, we've already shifted from being a company man or company woman for, you know, your whole life at one company to something much less than that. Once people are even more removed physically from that culture and that relationship, do you think it changes even more? I think there's a risk of that, Andrew. But I would say going back even to 2007, there was a meta-analysis, a study of studies of what we used to call telecommuting. And the finding was that as long as people were physically together half the week, there were no real costs to relationship. And then there were also job performance benefits and satisfaction benefits. So I think we will need some critical face time to build community, create a sense of belonging, enhance trust. Uh, but I don't think we have to be present all the time to get there. Do you think it changes trust, though, in terms of a culture? Because one of the things I think we've seen across the board during this period is people are in Slack channels. Uh, they're not seeing each other physically. People are saying things uh, inside some of these companies that they probably wouldn't have said if they were in an office place altogether. Yeah, again, like everything else, I think it's a double-edged sword. So I think it's, you know, it's harder for people sometimes to have good judgment about what they want to share with their colleagues. On the other hand, what they're sharing is, is actually sometimes helpful. There was an experiment I loved by Lee Thompson a few years ago where people were assigned to brainstorm. And before they went into their creative problem-solving task, some of them were asked to just share an embarrassing story. 
And it turned out that they had more ideas afterward and their groups were also significantly more creative. And I think a lot of us get the relationship between trust and vulnerability backward. We think, look, I have to trust you before I'm willing to open up to you. But it actually goes in reverse. It's being vulnerable that convinces you, well, I must trust my coworkers. Otherwise, why in the world was I showing them all the dirty dishes piled up in my kitchen sink? And I think those moments, those glimpses into our lives at home have really been humanizing for a lot of people over the last 11 months. Adam, uh, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, you've made us think again. It's a great book, um, and we appreciate uh, seeing you. We hope to uh, talk to you again very soon. We'll see, we'll, we'll see you either hopefully in person, maybe remotely, maybe in our flexible work, work life. We'll see how it all goes. Next on Squawk Pod, are cannabis stocks the next mark for Reddit retail rebels? Aurora CEO Miguel Martin is looking beyond the market swings. What's important is the fundamentals of the cannabis business are very strong. We get a really good quarter. So while there's a lot of volatility in the market, a lot of conjecture, I think the macro picture, you know, is quite strong. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. Let's also get a check on the pot stocks. Love me, love me not. They've been pretty volatile in the last few days after being hyped on the Wall Street Bets subreddit. Yesterday, Sundial was down by 19%. Tilray plunged by nearly 50%. And Afria fell by nearly 36%. Sundial down by another 4% this morning. Tilray down by 4.2%. And Afria down by about a half a percentage point. But again... This is a situation where, you know, things run up and they come back down. One of the names caught up in the big swings, Aurora Cannabis, which just reported quarterly results. The company's stock is up 74 percent so far this year. It has a market cap of $1.6 billion, but a wide 52-week high and low range and short interest that's about 14 percent of the flow. Joining us right now is Aurora CEO Miguel Martin. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have watched this stock and this entire sector just move around so much, especially in, in the past couple of weeks. And we've seen both issues in Washington driving it, but maybe even more so folks on Reddit. As somebody running a company um, that's watching this stock and seeing what's happening online, what are you thinking? First and foremost, <clears throat> thanks for having us. You know, when I see this, you know, I, you know, it's really not core to what we're looking for the business. I think what's important is the fundamentals of the cannabis business are very strong. We get a really good quarter. You know, year over year revenue was up, adjusted EBITDA was up, our cash use was much better, and, uh, you know, our cash on hand. And so while there's a lot of volatility in the market, a lot of conjecture, I think the macro picture, you know, is quite strong. We had five states 
passed comprehensive legislation. There's obviously movement afoot in Virginia and New York. We're now you know, receiving revenue in over 13 countries around the world. And so while there is a lot of you know, retail investor interest and Reddit uh, interest and short squeezes going on, I think long term, that's not going to be the story of cannabis. I think the long term story of cannabis is that it's going to be a good business economically. And there's a lot of upside both domestically, you know, in the U.S. as well as around the world. But Miguel, as a CEO, and I think a lot of a lot of CEOs may confront this, which is how do you think about your shareholder base? Right. A, a lot of CEOs would say that, you know, they're looking for long term shareholders who are in this based on fundamentals, based on numbers, based on perhaps even a relationship, if you will. What you're seeing now is something else. And I'm trying to figure out and I think a lot of CEOs are trying to figure out how to grapple and maneuver around that or with it. Well, I think it's a great question. You know, clearly the cannabis stocks have had a long history of a strong retail base. And, and you mentioned the short percentage of our stock. I think, you know, you want to do the best thing you can for shareholders, whether those are retail investors or long term institutional investors. We've started to see a good movement of institutional interest in the cannabis stocks. I mean, it's only been two years that the rec business has been legal in Canada um, and the medical business is still nascent around the world. And so I think all you can do as a CEO is focus on free cash flow, being even a positive, building a strong company that's sustainable. And while there'll always be this type of volatility, I think, in the short term, I think long term, you know, know, as this industry starts to mature, people will focus on fundamentals. And I think the fundamentals of a company like Aurora, particularly as we look towards the U.S., science, compliance, a long history of being successful in many markets, positions as well for a variety of different investors. But, but do you imagine yourself as a CEO spending more time in the future uh, with institutional investors? Or do you imagine yourself even taking to either Twitter or Reddit or other places to have a different type of communication? So we're clearly doing both. So we've had increased conversations with institutional investors. I think they're more and more comfortable, um, whether it's the maturity of the space, the core fundamentals, the global aspects of it, the upside. You know, we're seeing that both in the U.S. around the world. And also, you know, as communication evolves, clearly we have to do more, um, you know, with the retail investors and other investors. And whether that's through Twitter, um, our own, you know, communication methods or other forms of social media, it is important. This is a category that's moving really quickly. And getting the news out there about how profitable it can be, how strong the margins are, the innovation we see around the category, both on the medical and rec business, is important. So I think you have to take advantage of all of those. At the end of the day, though, when you have medical margins in the high 60s and you have more and more countries passing comprehensive, thoughtful uh, regulations and the U.S. getting closer, both at the state and the federal level, I think there's a great story here. And we'll communicate in a variety of different ways. Speak to that, uh, uh, that last piece about what you think is going to happen at the federal level, what the Biden administration uh, will want to do and what it can do in Congress. Well, I mean, listen, we're getting to a tipping point. It's my opinion that you know, cannabis is both an economic issue as well as a social issue. If you see what's happened, you know, at state budgets and the success you know, of states like Illinois and Colorado and California, there clearly are significant economic benefits to comprehensive cannabis legislation. It's my opinion that a federal construct is the one that makes the most sense. Um, and clearly under that scenario, those companies that have an experience around compliance and science and regulation, which the Canadian LPs do, will have a significant advantage in that. And so I think the Biden administration um, as well as positive comments we've seen from Senator Schumer and Senator Booker will lead us there. It's hard to say exactly when, but I do believe that we'll have a federal construct with interstate commerce that will allow for thoughtful um, and economic you know, advantages to be brought to the U.S. It's just, you know, I think it's a question more of 
you know, when as opposed to if. Amigo, I'm curious about the relationship between your industry and the finance industry. And the reason I ask is we, we did a segment on a story that came out in the last hour about how some of the big banks may actually start to uh, work with Bitcoin. Uh, again, that was something that nobody was doing um, basically before now. Um, and it's in some ways, it's a similar issue uh, potentially with with your business. Are you finding more and more acceptance uh, with the sort of traditional banking system yet? We are, and obviously, you know, the Safe you know Act, which I, I think you know we'll see passage of this year. There's clearly, you know, to be fair, how young this industry is, and I think for the banks who are traditionally very conservative, had to learn that. But we've had tremendous banking relationships in Canada. And around the world, and clearly, you know, it's a big global, you know, macro environment when it comes to finance. And so, I think that is going to cross over into the U.S. And the, you know, conversations we have have been very substantive with major banks. And I think as time goes along, they're going to be much more comfortable not only, you know, with the core sort of economics of these of these industries, but also the core fundamentals in terms of how we operate, which is in a very compliant and regulated way. Okay, Miguel, it was great to see you. We appreciate you joining us, and uh, thank you very much. You again, very very soon. It. You bet. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, you have suggestions, or you just want to say hello, send us a review or tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here on Tuesday. Enjoy your long weekend and happy Valentine's Day. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.